good late afternoon if you are in the east coast of the United States and good whatever you may be experiencing wherever you are in the world. This is Danny Haifong for another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live if you happen to be able to do so. Today, I want to talk about whether this new Cold War is popular in the United States. And that is a huge question, a loaded question. And I'm going to just review some of the data, some of the polling numbers. And now, of course, U.S. polls that are taken are heavily partisan. They aren't always accurate, as we learned during the 2016 election debacle with Hillary Clinton. We know that these polls are very flawed, but they do reflect political trends, and they do have some utility in that regard. So I wanted to raise them and the data that we have on these polls with regard to the new Cold War that I thought might be useful in having a discussion about whether this is popular in the United States and why, if that is the case. So thank you so much again for coming uh, those who could join me live, generally this program is at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Today I was unable to get to this podcast at that time due to other commitments, but here I am. So let's get right to it. So how I'm going to structure this pod is I will speak for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then we can have hopefully 30 minutes of discussion after that. So please, if you do want to have a discussion. If you do want to participate in the conversation, stick around for that portion later in this episode. So first, I want to go over the reason why I wanted to talk about this today. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is because Biden's Joe Biden's approval rating uh, as president is floundering. And This comes amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is really at the center of this U.S.-led new Cold War. Really, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is a flashpoint of this new Cold War in every single aspect of it, from what caused it to what will resolve it surrounds this new Cold War, surrounds how the United States has provoked Russia, how the United States has had a general policy orientation, a Cold War policy orientation toward Russia for many years now, arguably uh, for over a decade. So Joe Biden, he is presiding over administration that is reacting and responding to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And Joe Biden has responded and reacted by pumping military weaponry and aid into Ukraine, as well as leveling intense sanctions on Russia, including an oil ban and a natural gas ban, which is huge, right? And is already having immense impacts and immense effect on the global economy. And so this new NBC News poll reported March 27th, so just a week ago, shows that Joe Biden's favorability rating, whether people approve or disapprove about how he is doing right now, has fallen by 3% since January. It's now down to a record low of 40% of people polled of 1,000 adults. 
is just 40%. And that, given how early we are in Joe Biden's administration, is troubling. And really shows that despite the fact that the United States and Joe Biden has attempted to present itself as the arbiter of democracy and freedom and against autocracy and tyranny that Russia represents, despite all of this kind of grandstanding and really taking an aggressive posture on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, this hasn't really helped his uh, overall approval with the general public. When I say general public in this poll, this really is a poll of Democrats and Republicans, right? These are people who are very partisan, and, and these are the folks, if they aren't targeted with voter suppression, and they're likely not the poorest, the most marginalized, and oppressed and exploited in society, these are forces who, who do determine within the limited scope of so-called democratic process in the United States, they do determine who will become president, at least at the surface level, right? It's really the rich and the elite who determine who becomes president of the United States. But these are the forces who will go out and vote and will be very enthusiastic about one or the other, the other candidate, if that makes sense. So Joe Biden, right? He actually received a slight increase in favorability rating, about 5%, up from 37% approve of his foreign policy to 42% since the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? So he has gotten somewhat of a boost. And so where he is really lagging is on the economic situation. Joe Biden has been steadily declining in popularity with regard to his economic policy, In April 2021, 52% of people said they approved of how Joe Biden was handling the economy. Now it's just 33%. So that is a huge deal because it's really on that issue that which will determine his electability in 2024. And of course, this spells really, I think, doom for the Democrats in the midterms, given how they just have a slight lead in Congress right now. They just have a slight majority in Congress. That's likely to go away in 2022 uh, in the upcoming midterm elections, just given the level of enthusiasm or lack thereof for Joe Biden, for the Democrats. Nonetheless, the new Cold War has a lot to do with this because these sanctions on Russia are the reason why there is this massive increase in the uh, cost of living in the United States because gas has gone up to a degree really not seen in a long time in the United States. And that's because even though the United States pumps fracked gas into the world market, no matter how quote-unquote energy independent it is, these monopolies, these corporations are really hedging their bets and they're seeing that if the EU and if all these countries that Russia supplies gas to cut off the spigot, then that could ultimately place pressure on the market to produce more supply that these corporations aren't necessarily going to, in the long term, be willing to do. The fossil fuel industry does not like to flood the market, even if it has a monopoly over prices. It's hoping that it can get some temporary bump because of that. But there is long-term consequences to that, right, in terms of how 
much demand for this gas will actually uh, how much will there actually be and if there's a war that is creating these unstable conditions then that also means that the market is unstable and so these corporations are essentially saying okay in order to protect ourselves quote unquote from that we are going to jack up the prices and we are going to accumulate massive profits because that's what capitalism is all about in order to make up for any kind of losses that could happen in the future, whether it's because Russia actually doesn't have its market cut off to that degree, which is very possible right now, given that Russia produces cheap natural gas, or whether it's because there's this understanding that if you flood the market with goods, it is likely that that demand will actually recede and that there will be losses and maybe an economic crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So this massive inflation around gas prices follows up this massive inflation that's going on all across the Western world, the United States. And it's really just a policy of profiteering. And that is what we're seeing across the board. And people are unhappy about it, but not many people are making the connection between this new Cold War on Russia, right? These sanctions, which are meant to starve Russia, which are meant to really conduct regime change on Russia. You heard Joe Biden say that in a speech in Poland, saying that this man cannot remain in power. He was referring to Vladimir Putin, and then he doubled down on that when asked by the media, hey, did you mean that you want to conduct regime change? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm not apologizing for anything. And while the State Department says they don't have a policy of regime change, it's quite clear, as I've explained in past videos, you can follow me on the left lens, that actually there is a policy of regime change against Russia. But nonetheless, this is the situation that Joe Biden is in overall. And so while he has gotten somewhat of a boost in terms of his approval rating for foreign policy around the Russia-Ukraine crisis, his ability to manage this crisis actually shows that most people feel that he has they have very little confidence in him. So 44% say they don't have confidence in his ability to manage this crisis. And there are also other concerns, which I find interesting as well, which should be noted. So 83% of this NBC News poll said that they are concerned about the war increasing the cost of goods and services like gasoline. And 82% said that they're concerned that the war will involve nuclear weapons, and 74% said they're concerned the U.S. will send combat troops to fight Ukraine, something that majorities across the board do not want. And actually, 57% already believe the U.S. is at war with Russia already, and that uh, within the next year, 41% said that a war is imminent between the U.S. and Russia. So these are interesting numbers. Because while he has gotten a little boost for his quote-unquote job and how he's doing in response to the Russia-Ukraine crisis, he is also showing very little confidence from the American public. And as well, there are fears. People are actually afraid of the consequences of this conflict, even though they may not be on the right side. And what do I mean by that? So these fears, right, about nuclear weapons, they likely come from, right, earlier last month, there was a, an alert sent to Russia's 
nuclear deterrent program saying, you know, put yourself on red alert. And people completely ignored the word deterrent, meaning that Russia would not use nuclear weapons unless it was uh, likely that they would have, you know, that they would be targeted uh, for nu- for nuclear warfare. But nonetheless, a lot of people were very scared that Russia was going to use nuclear weapons after that media headline that went across all of the mainstream press. And, of course, the propaganda, right? This anti-Russia propaganda has reached fever pitch. You have cats being banned from competitions if they're from Russia. You have... Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky, and all these philosophers, Russian philosophers, pre-Soviet Union philosophers being banned, right? You have just an incredible amount of censorship happening uh, and, and just a constant flooding of news about how awful Russia is, the atrocities that are being committed, usually without any verifiable evidence. There's just a lot of misinformation being spread. And of course, What's happening is that Russia is being portrayed as the Cold War boogeyman, as the completely violent and utterly barbaric imperial power, while Ukraine is this innocent white nation, supposedly European nation, which is being targeted and is a worthy victim. That is how this war is being shaped up on the propaganda realm, and it is shaping public opinion pretty strongly. So... Earlier in March, right, and within the first couple weeks of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, there's some interesting polling data that happened. So Reuters conducted a poll with Ipsos, and on March 4th, what they found was that 74% of Americans they asked about a no-fly zone said that they agreed that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, should impose one. On Ukraine, which would essentially mean World War Three, right? It would essentially mean that the so-called quote-unquote closing the skies would include U.S. and NATO uh, anti-aircraft missile carriers as well as fighter jets, etc. All the military equipment required to bomb Russian forces out of Ukraine as well as to take down any aircraft that Russia may have uh, flying over Ukrainian airspace. So that would lead to World War III. And 80% of Americans in this poll also said that the U.S. should stop buying Russian oil, and they 81% said that they should impose, Washington should impose additional sanctions on Russia. And that was up from 77% conducted uh, just a few days before that. So people's public opinion about sanctions, about the no-fly zone in the United States, it's actually quite high. Now, with the no-fly zone question, actually one of the interesting things about this is that, and we should guess, is that most people don't know what a no-fly zone is, right? Especially a lot of these astroturfed, kind of mobilized liberals and reactionaries and the people who are just completely drowning in the anti-Russia Kool-Aid, all dating all the way back to Russiagate, 
right, in two, beginning in 2015, 16, these people, these forces, these uh, the sector of the population, they don't understand what a no-fly zone is, and, and they don't really care. However, in a UMass poll conducted later in March, March 24th, uh, UMass Lowell poll, they found that when you add in the possibility of a nuclear war, that the numbers get slightly better, that just under half of U.S. adults favor a no-fly zone in Ukraine when they know that there's an increased risk of nuclear war. However, that number is still quite high. All right. So there is a lot of public support for U.S. aggression against Russia, just as long as it's justified by this Russia-Ukraine conflict, which has unfortunately been framed as a completely isolated event where the United States has only just become involved in order to protect Ukraine, rather than being the force that it is, which is an imperialist force, which has meddled, and worse than meddled in Ukraine, has literally helped stage a coup d'etat there in 2014, has helped militarize the country, fostered and fomented a civil war inside of the country. It's been going on for years at the detriment of thousands, most of which reside in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region. That is what the United States really is. That's the role it's played. And it's dangling of NATO expansion and NATO membership for Ukraine over the past several years has played a huge role in why this conflict has even happening and why it will continue likely to go on until there is some assurance and guarantee that something like NATO membership for Ukraine is not going to occur. So... Unfortunately, most people in the United States believe that Russia-Ukraine conflict is indeed just the Russia-Ukraine conflict rather than a war that has been happening for years, which the United States spurred, sparked, and continues to uh, be deeply involved in and be the primary problem. And that's not what aboutism, that's just truth. So with that said, I just want to review a few more aspects of public opinion. So before the Russia-Ukraine conflict happened, Gallup conducted a poll about public opinion in the United States toward Russia. And this has been a really telling number for quite some time that's only been going up. And so in this poll, February 24th, 85% of Americans in it said that they have an unfavorable view of Russia. So that's 85%. That's a huge number. Uh, 74% have an unfavorable opinion of Vladimir Putin. And so we should be not surprised by that given the propaganda. But it is really... I think, telling about how Americans feel about Russia, that these numbers are so high. And we can go on and look at public opinion toward China to see how this new Cold War really has a huge impact across the board. And China is at the center of of it. And so... uh, Actually, public opinion towards China has been equally on 
the decline. So just some numbers here. In a Gallup poll conducted on March 16th uh, of this year, the number of Americans who see China as the greatest enemy to the United States doubled from 22 to 45%. And then you have a lot of just Americans, 64% disapproving of China's handling of COVID-19, which is interesting enough because China has done far better in terms of protecting human life in the United States by a factor of hundreds to thousands. And 63% of Americans see China's economic power as a critical threat. So that's up 40 from 40% in 2018 and 46% in 2019. So this is from 2020 from Pew Research Poll. And they find that many more Americans are seeing China as a principal threat in their economic growth as a principal threat, which is a key talking point of this new Cold War. So in terms of favorability rating, China in Gallup polls has a very similar number it's it, it hovers between two-thirds to four-fifths of americans view china negatively they see china as a threat and so this shows right and i think this shows something complex because it doesn't necessarily mean that the new cold war on china russia is popular what it means is that most Americans, especially those who generally just consume partisan politics that come through the mainstream media, the Western media, the corporate media, they don't understand what a Cold War is. They don't know that one is actually happening. How they see what's happening is that they see Russia and China as increasing threats because they're told over and over again that's the case. And they also support the politicians who who say that policies toward Russia and China, aggressive policies, economically, militarily, are actually beneficial to the upkeep of quote-unquote democracy and American exceptionalism and all of this. So they view Russia and China as existential threats to their continued existence. And given that polls don't generally go to working people, right, to, to ordinary people, right? I've never filled out a poll. I've been registered as a Democrat in the past. Sometimes I do it experimentally, but I don't get these polls, right? These polls are very selective, and many people never, most people never participate in them. So while we can view how the most partisan forces feel about Russia and China through these polls. And we can get a good understanding of that, which is very important because these forces happen to be those that the establishment is appealing to and are looking to for cover for these wars. This is very true for the new cold war. But at the same time, I think that there's still an opportunity to win over and convince those who are, Really, I think, at the base of what power is, right, those ordinary people, working people who are going to need to become politically active, who are going to need to take further control and power in this society in order to really transform and change things. It's an opportunity to talk to people about this 
in order to counter and build a countervailing force uh, to these new cold warriors. So indeed, there is, because of the racism, because of the imperialism, because of the constant and incessant propaganda against Russia and China, and because of how this new Cold War is framed actually as not a new Cold War at all, you will never hear Joe Biden say, yeah, we're in a new Cold War. You won't hear the establishment say that they're in a new Cold War. But you will see over and over again propaganda from the likes of George Soros, the Atlantic Council. We can go across the board, all of these think tanks from AS, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI. Uh, there is a whole network of institutions from think tanks, corporate media outlets, the Washington establishment, the European allies, so-called, quote-unquote, right, the EU, NATO. I mean, there's a huge infrastructure to promote this new Cold War. You have all the social media companies in on it. You have all of uh, the... Uh, media corporations, as I said before. So you have a whole network, right? The the whole state apparatus and its corporate partners are, are really in on misinforming people about Russia and China and about this new Cold War that they're pursuing so that they can continue on this path without any accountability. But the miscalculation here and I think I'll end my remarks here. The miscalculation is that the further that this Cold War orientation goes, right, the further that this Cold War, which is really an imperialist war, it's, it's really a neo-colonial war, but the further and further it goes, the more and more steps that the United States and its junior partners take in pushing aggressive pressure toward Russia and China, the more consequences that we see for working people. I mean, this even dates back to something like the trade war on China. Who lost in that trade war? It certainly wasn't uh, China. China continued to grow at a steady pace. And while China certainly did not want to lose certain levels of cooperation and investment in China, it also stood to be true that a lot of corporations in the United States said this trade war is not beneficial to us. And they just kept on doing business in China against the whims of the Trump administration. And instead, what a lot of these corporations did was they started to cut back on investment in the United States. So people like soy farmers and, 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 uh, certain other industries that are very uh, dependent upon uh, China's market, they began to be hit, and this actually hurt U.S. workers, and it hurt prices, right? It actually fueled also uh, prices rising in order to make up for the fact that uh, there was the threat of punishment for doing business uh, with China. So it was really the United States that lost its own trade war, and I think this blowback is a very key part of all of this, and it's happening in a big way with U.S. policy toward Russia. So both Russia and China right, are so such important parts, integral parts of the overall world economic situation that to try to economically and militarily intimidate, provoke, harass, 
and and really build up toward a, a war, like a, a hot war, is is disastrous. And we're seeing that in Ukraine with these massive increases in the gas prices, and of course overall just this massive inflation, given all the economic instability that comes with war provocations and a global confrontation such as these. So this is going to continue, right? And how popular these policies are, right? These uh, new Cold War imperialist policies are is dependent upon how, both how they are framed and the conditions that they lay. And what we are seeing is that there's a huge difference between those. There's a huge contradiction. So Biden can talk about democracy, this democracy, all he wants. He can try to paint Ukraine as white. He can try to use racism and jingoism and anti-Russian, anti-China talking points. But if people in the United States actually can feel a real negative impact, it's likely that their negative opinion toward Russia and China is not going to have the kind of benefits that they thought it would have, right? That Biden and company thought it would have. And so it's a real bind. It's a real issue and crisis that uh, we need to pay attention to. We need to really continue to ask the question, are these policies popular? Are, uh, are they supported? And by whom? And then we need to continue to provide the counter narrative, uh, the one that is actually closest to the truth, which is that the only solution here uh, when it comes to this new Cold War is peace. And that the only way we can get to peace is if we have people actively opposing these war provocations toward Russia and China, and of course, by extension, all of the wars that the United States wages around the world, because they're all connected to Russia and China to some extent, and they're all damaging, dangerous, violent, and completely uh, counterproductive to the future of human life and natural life itself, right? The U.S. military is the biggest polluter on the planet. So this is really... Uh, an imperative, a necessity, uh, the number one issue. That's why I make it the subject of this podcast, because I do believe that if we call this global situation right now a new Cold War, then we have to continue to identify who, what is at the root, who is at the root, and what do we need, what questions do we need to ask, and then what do we need to do about it in order to get uh, us to a more uh, beneficial place for uh, humanity. So with that said, we got a caller, Peter. He's a, he's a regular, and I'm going to bring him in. So, yeah, let's get to the calls. Let's have some conversation and discussion um, for those of you who are joining this live. And even if you don't have a question, yeah, I'm, I'm down to hear your comments. We can have... Uh, some some level of back and forth here uh, for the next 20, 30 minutes or so. So please do come in. Don't be shy. It's okay. Uh, uh, we can we can talk. Uh, all right. So Peter, I am unmuting you, or I am making you the caller. So go can ahead. You, can you hear me? Yes. Cool. 
Cool. Well, a great show as always. Big fan here. Uh, I am organizing a show of my own, so I'm being a very regular, as you can tell. <laughs> Thank you. I I, I got a, a when a disclosure, when a comment, a little bit long, and then a question. So the disclosure is this: I'm trying to use this calling app uh, while being able to share my screen. So uh, I uh, so I was uh, find out I actually can use the uh, on the on my phone to use a Zoom at least and or Google Meet and I have calling at the same time and at the same time doing a concurrent uh, like a conference sh uh, screen sharing and uh, I find out the only drawback is the, uh, the the audio is somewhat reduced a little bit that's why I ask you whether you can hear me okay or not okay. so every, every, everything sounds okay yes. Cool, thanks. So the comment is this. I've been following a lot of overseas Chinese uh, who study in Europe, Africa, uh, work, study, or, or raising a family in those uh, different continents. I find out their input is just fascinating. Uh, this uh, neo-Nazi uh, armed uh, army in Ukraine, uh, I, I believe a lot of people don't understand why Zelensky being a Jewish himself uh, is okay with uh, these kind of neo-Nazi uh, armed forces, which is very astonishing, right? So I learned it today from a Chinese lady who actually uh, worked in Sweden uh, for a while before she uh, came to the United States. She uh, gave me this fascinating explanation, uh, which just uh, uh, enlightened me to find out once, once again, the so-called Cold War is actually race war. It's when ethnic groups in America, in this case, white Christian in America, in the power of position in our government, go after racial minorities or someone they just don't like. Okay, so here's come story. There is a word called a pogrom, P-O-G-R-O-M. It's similar to Holocaust, but it's not Holocaust. What happened is that Russia is, including Ukraine, were responsible for this phenomenon called the pogrom, which is an organized massacre of a specific ethnic group of Jewish people in Russia, in Ukraine. So for the longest time, the, at least some of the Jewish people in, in the entire world is uh, uh, is kind of come to term with the Nazi Germany, uh, but they have never come to the term with the Russians or Ukrainians who were historically involved in this uh, ethnic cleansing activity. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. So what happens is this. This woman, uh, Newlander, uh, what's her first name? I forgot. Uh, uh, Victoria Newland. Victoria Newlander. She, her uh her grandfather's side, I believe, is from a Jewish family and suffered tremendously from this. Uh, they're from Russia. They suffered tremendously from this activity called the pogrom, uh, which lasted uh, until 1950s, I'm told. I, I'm educated by this. So what happens is that she had, she, uh, her family uh, hold a tremendous grudge against Russia. And uh, and that is why she's so active in, in in basically stirring up the 
the water, I guess, the mud in Ukraine. And uh, because uh, to to her, uh, uh, Russia have never uh, paid back uh, what they did with this uh, pogrom activity. Okay, I'm not trying to defend Russia about those things, but mm-hmm. to me, once again, remember uh, during the Japanese internment during the Second World War, you guess so who is the what uh, what ethnic group is used by the U.S. government to quote, manage, end quote, the Japanese internees, the Korean. So the U.S. government is very clever to use those historic ethnic, uh, you know, histories among each other to organize this kind of uh, foreign wars. And, uh, and uh, so I find that to be very refreshing. So now I understand why Zelensky, being a Jewish himself, a lot of uh, you talk about the negativity about the Russians in America. Well, I know a lot of the mainstream media's are actually also owned and operated by Jewish people. Is that correct? So I, I, I know I'm not going to say they are all doing this, but I'm just saying they probably have some kind of a you know incentive to say, okay, this phenomenon called a pogrom is similar to Holocaust. Russia has never come clean on that. So they want a racial revenge. So my problem is that why all the taxpayers' money need to fund this kind of a personal vendetta that are ethnically based. So I, I find that to be fascinating. To, uh, from, so again, this word is called podogram. You can Google it, P-O-G-R-O-M. It's a similar to Holocaust, but the difference is this. The Holocaust is organized by a government. It's a concentration camp. It's a pogrom. It's a private to private. It's like a lynching in America. Like a, it's a private group of people going after a specific ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And I found yeah. that to be fascinating. And so basically, again, it's that Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people believe that Russia have never come clean on that. That's why as long as this Azov uh, arms group is uh, killing Russians, they will be happy. My question will be, well, as the United States of America, are we supposed to, you know, use taxpayers' money to give this uh, Victoria Newlander and uh, and also this guy? Uh, what's her predecessor? Uh, Brzezinski is, is that? Uh, I don't know whether he's uh, Jewish or not, but I know uh, modern Albright, the war criminal, as you discussed last uh, last episode. I appreciate sure, uh, uh, modern Albright is a Jewish. Is that right? Yeah, she was. Uh, I believe she hailed from uh, yeah from Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, and she was a Jew. Yeah, yeah. It's a pogrom. This is pogrom. Again, I'm not trying to say this pogrom is right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the background of, yeah. of, of, of this thing. So again, this Chinese lady, I did not know this because she lived and worked in Sweden. So they all talk about this way before, uh, you know, before uh, around 2014. Why this Victoria Newlander will personally pick up a basket of fruits and the coca-cola handed out on this maiden square you know right. to me it's a it is odd right <laughs> so so that's that's the question i have for you is Dennis. this i've been asking other hosts to do this imagine you are david hebelstam or neil sheen in vietnam in the city of a high farm in 1963 okay you being David 
And me being Neil Shin, we just have a nice cup of coffee in a cafe. All right. So we've been in Vietnam for a few years. So you and I are chatting, say, hey, Danny, what do you think about this Vietnam thing? How long is it going to last? So you'll say, well, by Christmas, we'll be going home. And I'll say, no, I think it's not going to end in nothing five years. So I like to ask you, and hopefully I'm going to ask other people, based on all you know, how long you believe this Russian-Ukraine or Ukraine-Russian war is going to last? Hmm. Well, that question is a good question. I do want to address the um, the question, or at least the statements, uh, the comments that you made, Peter, uh, because I don't, I don't think I really agree with uh, uh, your with your friend who studied in Sweden. And this is not to say that I believe that what she's saying has absolutely no basis. It could have a basis to why there is some Jewish support for uh, Azov and for Nazism, etc. in Ukraine and why Zelensky, right, is has really shown himself to be also just another kind of cold warrior, right? Another anti-Russia hawk um, after, a, a, you know, Poroshenko, who was an anti-Russia hawk, who was uh, in, really installed uh, by the United States after that coup. But I do think that there's more to this, right? I, I do think that for one, uh, the it would be, I think, a spurious connection. These the po- the programs that happened in Russia, and, and they happened pre-Soviet Union, right? So the programs were this disastrous, as you said, like extremely violent anti-Jewish policy, anti-Semitic policy of massacres carried out by Tsarist Russia, carried out by uh, these. Uh, really just, uh, uh, you know, disgustingly racist forces. And yes, there was a mass migration. I mean, a lot of, you know, Jews from that this part of the world, Ukraine, Russia, came to Europe, came to the United States uh, because of these uh, pogroms. But what i see in terms of jewish support of nazism someone like zelensky is more of a a connection between the political situation the the zionist connection because zelensky is a pro israel zionist right his one of the his biggest funders igor uh, i forget his last name um he, uh, I believe his name is uh, Kolomoski, I think it was. He's a, he's a huge billionaire. He is a Ukrainian, he's an Israeli-Ukrainian, he has dual citizenship, but he's a huge billionaire, he's one of the biggest political backers of uh, Ukrainian politics, and he's the biggest funder of Zelensky's political campaign. He's very anti-Russian. He's very pro-Israel. He's very he's Zionist. You know, he, so I, I see the connection more there, right? In the sense that the just like all ethnic groups, uh, the the Jewish 
community worldwide is very split politically. Uh, it's just unfortunate that there that given that there are elites who happen to be Jewish, they do end up being kind of I don't know how should I say uh, pushed out there as representing right the broad uh, sort of trend among uh, that ethnic group, which is super diverse because just like Islam, Judaism is practiced by so many different groups and, and different uh, peoples. So, so I think that this is more of a political question. I think that this is more a political issue. I think it's Zelensky's backers. It's who he's tied to. It is the fact that he is a puppet that really makes the difference. I don't think, I think the hatred of Russians is a far right right-wing nationalistic Ukraine, you know, it's the OAU, the organization, um, I mean, the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists kind of tendency among all of these far-right groups from C-14 to Azov. I think that ideology, which the United States helped spread across Ukraine by creating this instability, is very political in nature. It's very imperialistic and I think Victoria Newland's position and posture is less. I mean, she no doubt has obviously passed down baggage from her anti-Russian uh, family, right? It's obvious that her family comes with a background, um, as you said, Peter, that definitely has this dislike for Russia. But I think that dislike is rooted in more than just ethnic. I think that given her political career and given how she's married to Robert Kagan, who founded the project for a new American century, which literally has as its goal, full spectrum dominance of the United States with Russia being one of the main targets that I think her hawkishness really comes from a place of real politic and, and imperialism and the anti-Russian racism is uh, something that serves that. And so, I'm not sure if I agree with Victoria Newland's political orientation being attributed mainly by some kind of familial and ethnic history. I think it's more so that she came into her position as the point person during the Obama administration for the coup in Ukraine as someone who was already deeply tied to the forces which have at their as their main policy the destabilization of the entire planet and Russia and China being the really the big cheeses that uh, uh, require it. And so her investment in Russia, which is obsessive and hawkish nonetheless, I think is more expl- explained by the political uh, situation. But nonetheless, I think, you know, in terms of your question about how long will this conflict last, I said earlier that I really don't think the conflict is going to end unless there are concessions on the side of Ukraine and, of course, the U.S. and NATO by extension. I really don't see this ending without that. And the reason for that is because uh, Russia is not a punk. Russia is not going to go out and say, okay, we're going to just institute uh, some kind of ceasefire and come to a peace agreement with absolutely no assurances 
that its interests and that its uh, demands are met, right? These are demands that span all the way back to December 2021 when Russia said, okay, we will uh, come to an agreement with Ukraine and with the U.S. and NATO over preventing escalations as long as there's no NATO expansion into Ukraine, as long as Ukraine will not become a NATO member, and as long as Ukraine renounces all of these military weapons of mass destruction that have been flooding into Ukraine since 2014-15. So unless something there changes around those demands, and now I think Russia wants Ukraine to enshrine in its constitution the recognition of Donetsk and Lugansk in the east, as well as recognition of Crimea as part of Russia, unless there's some movement around these demands, I don't think Russia is going to say, okay, we're going to let the status quo continue from prior to the operation. And, there, and again, the reason for that is, well, prior to, US, to Russia's intervention, eastern Ukraine was getting just absolutely walloped, wiped right off the face of the earth, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of deaths from Ukraine's military in the east. And NATO was seriously, at least rhetorically, speaking about how Ukraine's membership is not a matter of if, uh, but when Ukraine decides in a sovereign manner, la la la, yada yada yada, a bunch of BS, uh, when it decides it wants to come to NATO, then we will admit Ukraine. Uh, that that is not going to stop if Russia stops. So, so given how this has already lasted for now more than a month, given how all of the kind of it's like the China collapse, the Gordon Chang, China's going to collapse tomorrow, right? China's going to collapse every year. We're now having the same thing happen with Russia where there's all these analysts saying Russia's losing, Russia's losing, but yet Russia continues the operation and doesn't seem like there's any sign of letting up. And actually Russia's public public opinion in Russia is very pro this operation. And you have the majority of the world's population, not the majority of the world's countries, but the majority of the world's population within countries, mainly in the global south, either not opposing this or saying, we understand, but we're not going to take any sides, which really accounts to saying that, all right, well, things are going to go on as they're going on. We're not going to step in. I, I think that means that uh, what the Ukraine conflict is revealing is that this world is a lot more complex than the United States makes it out to be and that there really isn't a lot of pressure, right, that Russia is feeling to stop so long as it takes a certain political and economic direction that is in line with this multipolar trend. And we also see how these sanctions, while they're definitely hurting Americans and ordinary people, and they're definitely hurting Russia, Russia's already taking measures that's protecting its currency, right? The ruble is actually doing better than it has, I think, in a while, despite the sanctions. And so in Europe, continues to take 
Russia's gas because they're not prepared to turn it off, right? These policies, while they're willing to thump their chest, the EU and the United States thumping their chest about how they're banning this and banning that and turning off Russia's market in, in, into Europe, European countries, the EU, can't afford to do that, right? You can't just turn off 40% of your energy supply, which comes from Russia. You can't just say, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. That's disastrous. That would literally turn off the lights in Europe and tur- ultimately crash the economies. So there's a lot of complexity to this. And so how long will this last? I don't know. I, I think it's going to last for as long as it takes to get Ukraine and, of course, by extension, its puppet masters, the U.S. and NATO, to the table to concede on one or many of Russia's demands. And so I, I have some optimism that that could happen within the next month, but I surely would not guarantee that and surely wouldn't bet on it. So thanks, Peter, for your contribution. I think that, that was a really, really good question, really good uh, remarks. Thanks so much for coming. But I want to give someone else, if there's anyone else, I don't see anyone else in the queue. Um, no. Okay. Maybe I'm just not in the right. Sometimes this, there's some, uh, there are people in the queue. So sometimes it doesn't load. I think there's some bugs with the Android. I'm going to go with Hussein. Sorry if you've been waiting for a while. Uh, Hussein. Hey Danny, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Okay, so um, on your uh, the subject for this call in, you know the the war continues to be really popular, even though um, the Biden is not popular himself, and people still supporting like army in Ukraine to the teeth, while Biden is not popular, and I and I think it's because. Uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, um, foreign affairs is is never um, tied to one president. It's it's what well, no matter who the president is, the policy is always the same for um, for the U.S. Uh, you know, um, foreign uh, policy. It's always the same, no matter if the, the president is. So yeah, uh, Biden continues to go down, but the mainstream media keeps pushing the propaganda. And, you know, it's so apparent now that how much the mainstream media controls the thoughts of the people, because I've, for years, it's almost now at around 400,000 Yemenis that have died since the U.S. supports Saudi in bombing Yemen. And the mainstream media doesn't, you know, talk about it. And so the people don't talk about it. I mean, yeah, if you talk to individuals, they do care. But the majority of the country doesn't hear about it. So the mainstream media controls, you know, what how the people are going to feel, unfortunately. Um, another thing, do you think... Like we've heard of recent uh, events in the war where NATO would give intelligence to Ukraine. So in a way, isn't like Russia at war already with NATO and 
you know, I don't see it um, going away that soon. I am hopeful that it does, you know, end soon, but I see it as expanding as the policy continues to support you, Ukraine in anything, any way they want from, from Europe or from, from the U.S. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, thank you, Sane, for, for that contribution. Well, I think you are correct in, in many ways in terms of seeing this as the United States and NATO already being at war with Russia and how this is not likely to go away no matter what happens with Ukraine, right? Uh, I think that, sure, if I'm optimistic, that certainly given the U.S.'s fragility, given the fact that the uh, the Ukrainian government is not, I mean, I wouldn't call it the most str- the strongest or most popular, right? And, and certainly I wouldn't see Russia's current military operation as some kind of overwhelming loss. I think that they are kind of waging this operation how they hope to have waged it. And I think over the long term, it'll likely have dividends. So with that said, uh, no matter what happens here, whether it's a peace agreement, a ceasefire, no matter what happens, NATO still has its agenda. And uh, this is really just a, a flashpoint when you think about it. I mean, of course, when you think about any war, right, you don't want to reduce it to any kind of just flashpoint or or, or minimize the impact of it and minimize, but really it is a proxy war, right? Ukraine is being used as a proxy by the U S and NATO against Russia. And that means that this overall policy orientation toward Russia doesn't change no matter what happens in Ukraine. We're not going to see, uh, even if Russia gets all, even if Russia continues to move in a way that pressures the U.S. and NATO to meet every single demand, which I don't think is realistic because I don't think the U.S. and NATO care about the fate of Ukraine to the point of meeting any of these demands, honestly. I do think that they would much rather even just cede Ukraine politically while maintaining this posture of being a force that stands up to Russia, right? So even if Russia was able to get everything it wanted from Ukraine. I don't think the United States is going to endorse anything, if that makes sense. Uh, even if the situation becomes so dire that they can't help but allow and, and, and let Ukraine come to some kind of agreement. So, yeah, no, I mean, this uh, NATO is surrounding Russia across its borders, all along its borders, right? The military operations are held regularly that literally have Russia as the target. And so, no, I, I don't think that this is going to change because at the end of the day, what this new Cold War is, right? Peter called it a race war. It's an imperialist war. And it's a war of aggression, meaning that the overall objective with Russia and with China too, no matter how much they say it's not, it's about regime change. And so the policy of trying to pressure the Russian government to change its stripes is not going to change no matter what happens with Ukraine. 
right? There's still going to be millions pouring into the National Endowment for Democracy to demonize Russia. There's still going to be this military encirclement. There's still going to be sanctions. There's still going to be uh, the building up of an arms race, right? That's still going to happen. And uh, nothing short of a real massive transformation of how the United States organizes itself will change that fact. But I'm going to get to now Sean because I think he's been waiting. Um, so I'm going to make him the next caller. Uh, hi, Sean. Uh, I know Sean said he was having some issues. He said the phone hit this way after I clicked on it, nothing happened. Hmm. Uh, Sean, are you there? I have. How about your... now? Yes, you're good now. All righty. First time I'm using this, so I got to figure out that you got to push in something deliberately to be heard. But uh, question I question I had, there seems to be such a complete disconnect between if you listen to somebody like Scott Ritter talk about how the war is going and his opinion, as far as he can tell, and you listen to many other sources uh, in what people still call the mainstream media. That one has to wonder, well, where is he getting his information from? I mean, is it pretty much, are we, are we left with basically you, uh, maybe Consortium News? I mean, who else is, is left? There's plenty of talk about Russia, but where it, somebody like Scott Ritter being informed from? Or is it only sources that pretty much only he has access to because of his background? I guess I should be asking him that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I... <clears throat> Yeah, that's a good question. There is, um, man, it was banned on Twitter. I can't remember what the acronym was. It was a military, you know, there are ASB military news. Now it's just on Telegram. Um, ASB military news. I would follow them. They, they seem to be some kind of insiders, right? They almost remind me of like kind of like a WikiLeaks from people. I don't know if they're Intel. I don't know if they're, uh, I don't know if they, you know, what, what, where the, you know, I, I think that's purposeful too, right? They're they're very anonymous, so I would say fall, they have been coming out with regular updates uh, about the situation with the war, and um, and so it does. So so I I'm guessing that that's part of where Scott gets his information, but of course I'm sure, given his background, he has connections that can tell him even more than what ASV military news is saying. Uh, there's some other folk, you know, a lot of, because the social media has been so oppressive, right. I've even gone searching for alternatives and I found like, I found telegram accounts that uh, are, are talking about the situation because I was curious about Azov's defeat uh, in Mariupol Right, and there were reports that Azov was wiped off the face of the earth. Right, at least as an organization. Of course, there are individuals who still hold the ideology, but that the Chechens and uh, forces, you know, Russian forces aiding uh, Eastern Ukraine, that they ultimately defeated Azov there. And I had no idea where to get this information. And I was like, where can I confirm this? And it was really only on Telegram accounts from people close to the situation, close to people in East Ukraine, have parents that live there now who are saying these things. So it's, it is very difficult when 
the misinformation apparatus and the censorship is so strong and the misinformation is so widespread and uh, we really are kind of relegated to fewer and fewer uh, channels really just to get the information out. But, but you first have to find and get the information. And so the number of sources that are doing that are few and farther between, but, but I do recommend ASB military news at the very least. And, you know, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter or anything. If you do, you can DM me or ask for me to follow you. So you can DM me. I don't know how to open up my DMS, Um, but I can send you maybe this into this telegram group. Um, But that's basically where I'm getting my information from. And I think Scott Ritter, I don't know if he's getting it all from there, but he probably, I mean, he's much more connected than I am <laughs> to, to these, uh, you know, to, to those who make the policies and who would be following this closer. Um, but he's someone I've actually wanted to get on my YouTube program for a while. And, and um, yeah, I should do that soon. So thanks for bringing up his name actually. So thanks Sean. Um, so I'm going to leave after I, I see one. I see Peter back. Um, so I'm going to let him in unless there's somebody else who would like to contribute. And then I'm going to end there unless, um, you know, let me know, Sean, uh, by, by like staying in the queue if you want to respond. Um, but I'm going to put Peter in. And then, Sean, if you want to respond to anything I said, you can. But let me just. Uh, all right. All right, Peter. If you... Hey, Danny. Just want to respond what you, you what you said. Uh, first of all, I agree with you. Uh, the Victoria Newlanders' Jewish heritage probably is not the sole factor with what she did, right? The uh, I agree with you. The uh, because uh, I think I mentioned uh, last time when I called in is that this uh, map, uh, the original I call it original critical race theory. Uh, which is, you know, the, the map is called a political and moral chart of the inhabited world, which is dated 1827. It's a total crit, crit, uh, crit, uh, critical race theory product. That one actually decided uh, almost all the foreign policy and national security policy of this country. The uh, one of the things you use the word uh, jingoism, what it turns out, uh, you know, I think this guy, David Hubblestein, used it a lot. It's actually, in my opinion, is a ruse because the jingoism is from Japanese uh, mm. uh, imperialism during the Second World War, right? But a lot of people don't, uh, a lot of people in the West never told the truth about why Japan did what it did during the Second World War. So I want to just bring it up. So the last follow-up thing is this. You did not answer my question. I want to get a specific number. How many years? Like, <laughs> like we are in Las Vegas, right? We are, we are betting, right? That who is going to win the next uh, presidential election? You know, or, or how long? Because uh, you uh, both Hussein and you have mentioned, nobody knows how long this is going to take. And it matters because it matters on the gas price. Mm. You, you, right? And it also it matters, what if uh, in 2024, the war is still going on? Hmm. I actually believe the entire civilization may not be sustained for 10 years, if this war going on for 10 years, right? So 
So because uh, when uh, who Ho Chi Minh, you probably know, mm-hmm. was interviewed by a Swedish uh, uh, journalist, uh, Sweden being neutral, and the uh, the, the Swedish journalist asking, uh, how long are you going to fight this? Uh, what kind of a cost you're going to take to fight the Americans? And the Ho Chi Minh, I remember he said, he's going to fight as long as he he uh, as long as it's uh, as just forever, basically. And the, the cost is that as long as the, the ratio, casualty ratio of 10 to 1, he's willing to take that kind of a loss. He's being very specific. So I'm going to be very specific with you. So I'm going to bet for three years. My bet is that three years, this war is going to last at least three years. Which is shocking prediction, right? Because there's a lot of impact on gas price, on election results, on a lot of people's employment, maybe on the food shortage of the world, mm. right? So I, I would like you to be, you know, <laughs> so that's what I want to do a quick follow up. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say, I, I think because of all the things you mentioned, I don't think that open hostilities, right? I'll, I'll say this most specifically, that this will be over. The, the hostilities, the open hostilities, I think will end within the next six months. But do I think that the war overall will end? Do I think that it will be a permanent end? Do I think that there won't be other issues in the next fight? I do think that that's impossible to predict, but more likely not. You know, more likely that some when something like this happens, it sends a cascading effect. You know, it's like uh, when history moves in this way, you can't really uh, arrest it always. And I don't think that NATO and the United States really understand what they've unleashed, which is the fact that uh, they've taken, I think, a step over a line, which uh-huh. you can't. Yeah, which you can't. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't stop. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, this guy he, who is a Ukrainian, he was on uh, Katie Halper's show last Sunday. I actually, I ended him also. I said, hey, what do you think? How long this thing is going to last? He is in Ukraine. And he said he does not know. He wished it would not be three years. Now, I appreciate the fact you have said you, you believe the hostility should uh, end six months. So by October, before the midterm election, uh, the, the hostility, so which will be good news for Democrats, right? But basically, I, I appreciate you. You it you, might you, be required. I mean, it all, as you said, as you just pointed that out, I was even thinking that way. I, but I, but I do think it might be required that there be some kind of because the United States, because Biden will need something. I mean, it can't go on like this because yeah, I if know. it continues like this, I mean, you're talking about massive. As you said, I mean, you're right. There, there are massive consequences to this that oh, I don't yeah. think people the are thinking about. Yeah, the strategic. Uh, oil reserve, you can do the one million a barrel a day, but it's not going to last six months. You know what I'm saying? You're going exactly. to deplete your. You will not, the U.S. military may may running out of gas, mm-hmm. uh, the the oil. You know, so that's yeah. why I encourage you to ask others in your other venues. I, I want to really think. You know, Colin probably should get a poll. You know, just have people from all over the world. You know, just introduce themselves, what geographic area they're from, and have a little vote. Say. Hey, what do you think? This war is going to end in two months, six months, mm-hmm. three years. You know, get some kind of, you know, I think it could be fun. So, but thank you very much. I don't mean to yeah. take too much of your time. Yeah, that's okay. And then last but not least, um, 
I don't know if Sean, you want to, uh, you want to respond. I'm going to just make you the next caller. If you had any responses, I know. Um, yeah, I said a lot. So, and you've been in the queue. I don't know if Sean is there. There you go. Oh, hey. Yeah, it's like a two-step process. First, you have to unmute me, and then I have to unmute myself. Right, 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 right. I think it's the way. But uh, one question regarding uh, the, the comments that the caller made previously. I mean, future is unpredictable. That's, mm-hmm. But one thing that I should not assume is that is that Biden would like to have the war done by election time. I would imagine that they – I mean, the only – only rational way somebody can vote for, for Biden is if the war is still going on and they're afraid of switching presidents in the middle of it. Mm. You know. That's a good point. That's a good point too. I think it's a. I think it's a. I yeah. Think that they're going to want to wrap it up on that. Plus, I think that the yeah. The, the people who are the, the only people who stand to gain will be gaining more. In other words, the Pentagon supply. And, uh, and all the jobs at the Pentagon and all the jobs in the military. The, basically, the only reason we're in, in, in all of these wars is, is so the unemployable can get jobs and keep jobs, and so that the worst companies in the world can continue to make these profits. And that will not be any different in two years or in six years. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's amazing how quickly after Afghanistan this got started. <laughs> they can't go even a few weeks without a war. The one thing I want to ask is, is do we, the left, do we get to change terminology like mainstream media changes terminology? Why do we still call them mainstream media if what they are is, and very clearly what they are, is a public relations branch of the U.S. government? Why can't we call them, you know, why don't we get to decide language as well if, if they if they are obviously public relations and they are not news, why was, why must we continue to call them news Mm. and to follow what they're saying, you know, to, to really pay that much attention to, to it? Because I mean, they have no credibility right right now. I don't know. We have, we should have some kind of contest to see what the left should be calling the you know the the synchronized bubble that is CNN, MSNBC, CBS, ABC, NBC, and Fox. You know, I mean, there's something we could call them, but I don't think it should be mainstream media because they're not mainstream. They're all far right, and they're synchronized. I mean, they're not so encompassing. They're just like, I mean, they they run like a top. It's basically one institution. Mm-hmm. That's my comment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. Well, thanks. Thanks for those comments. I think that they're all very, um, I think, insightful. I, I'm, I think that's a, your point about, of course, the Pentagon, the weapons manufacturers, the min, military contractors want this war to continue. I think that's 100% true. Uh, I do think that there's also truth in what you say about the Biden administration likely wanting this war to continue so that it could continue to posture and continue to use it as an electoral chip in its overall arsenal to try to win re-election. But I also think that there is, you know, given the U.S.'s own situation, the state that it's in, 
there is this other uh, part that uh, a part of this conflict and and this whole I guess chess game and uh, debate about whether this should go on or shouldn't go on among the establishment. I think that's the the Russian side, and it's the side of what would happen if the United States right ended up being in a position where Russia is victorious in its objective, independent of the United States and NATO, meaning that if the U.S. and NATO keep going on their current trajectory, sanctions and military aid, all of that, and still they don't get what they want, then that comes off as extremely weak, right, to the hawkish forces and also the anxieties that people have about this war and the economic impact of it, I think, could have political consequences. So that means that there could be some, and I think that this will be the case, that there will be some pressure placed on the U.S. to, at the very least, try and, and I think Ukraine will play a part of this, to come to some kind of, at the very minimum, bare minimum, a ceasefire at some point soon. I know it's been absolutely just fruitless, all of these talks that have happened over the past several weeks, but I do think that that's not a complete impossibility, um, just given the fact that this isn't just what the United States wants anymore, right? When the United States provoked this, as things kept escalating, right, between Russia and Ukraine, when Russia decided to intervene, it, it changed politics in a lot of ways, especially in relation to this new Cold War. It's why this podcast started, not because of the intervention, but because the new Cold War was inevitably going to create and had already has already been creating huge shifts in the political situation. So with that said, um, I am going to conclude this episode of Cold War Brew. Uh, we've been going on for quite a bit now. We're getting into the hour 20 minute mark, but it was really good to be with all of you today. Um, I will try, I, there will definitely be a week off and that might be next week. Um, actually, it is next week. So I will not be here next Sunday, uh, but I will be back soon, and I'll let you all know when I am. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, and look forward to many more. Peace out.